0: Hey, well, welcome to part two of our summer message series in the book of Proverbs. I'd encourage you to grab a Bible and maybe even a notebook today as we cover a lot of ground over the next few minutes. Uh, I would want to begin today by presenting to us a very simple truth, uh, something that the Bible and the book of Proverbs presents to us over and over and over. And it's this, there is a wrong way to live. Now, I know, probably most of us believe that to some level. Uh, you know, there are certain actions that we would easily recognize as wrong. You know, murder is wrong. Racism is wrong. Bullying is wrong. And so on and so forth. You know, like, like litter is wrong. Like, like, how hard is it to wait for a garbage can or a recycle bin? You know, like, there are things that we just easily identify as wrong. But I think if we were to press this discussion one level further, it might be where we get into the realm of uncomfortable or dare I say, offensive, in our you-do-you you day and age. Uh, especially when we start thinking about our lens for looking at life, the, the framework by which we view reality, our, our worldview that every one of us, whether we recognize it or not, no matter how thorough it is, every one of us actually has. And in this series, you know, we're, we're discussing the topic of wisdom and we're going to define it over and over as God's perspective specifically as God's perspective applied. So not just hearing, but also doing. Not just information, but also transformation. And so let me present to us another simple truth. If we want to be wise, we have to fear God. And this is why we see at the start of the book of Proverbs this simple and foundational truth that, that that goes all throughout this book and actually all throughout the Bible itself. And it's found in Proverbs 1 verse 7, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of of knowledge and, and what we'd come to discover in places like Proverbs 2 is that from the mouth of the Lord come wisdom. So if we want to be wise, we have to fear God. But see, as simple as this sounds, I have some questions about this. And maybe you do too. Like for example, the first question might be, you know, does wisdom require fearing God? Because, look, there are people you know and people I know, even my own relatives, as a matter of fact, that, that they're, they're bright, they're intelligent, they're sharp. They, they, you know, they have no concept, though, necessarily of God or belief in him or they don't, they're not Christians. They don't, they don't ascribe to Christianity. And yet, and, and some of them even would oppose any sort of worldview that includes God and, and actually offer arguments that sound wise. So what do we make of that? Does wisdom really require fearing God or is this something else just kind of extra for you know, those people who go to church and, and like you know, reading the Bible and stuff like that? Well, no. Because as, you know, as we you know, go throughout and, and discuss the topic of wisdom, what we're going to see is that you know, wisdom isn't just about individual choices. It's not just about decision. It's also about direction. Let me illustrate what I mean. In a few minutes uh, after you know, I'm done recording this and the place I'm recording it, I'm gonna hop into my Toyota and head home. Now along the way, along the journey of that, I'm gonna enter a sequence of you know, decision-making processes. You know, right out of the gate as I kind of leave the parking lot, boom, there's Wendy's, do I stop at Wendy's? Which actually really isn't a decision because Frosty's are 99 cents, so we know what's gonna happen there. But you know, we go on from there. You know, when and how do I enter the roundabout? You know, do I do I kind of mat the the gas and just kind of quickly you know bust in to maintain the efficiency of traffic and and just kind of you know barely squeeze in between two cars to get to get in quickly, or do I wait and kind of just breeze and glide in comfortably? And it goes on from there, you know, do I drive in silence or do I turn on, you know, my my sound system? And if I do turn on my sound system, do I turn on the radio? Do I turn on a podcast? Do I turn on an audio book? You know, when I approach a yellow light, do I speed up or do I slow down? You know, it's sunny outside. Do I I grab my sunglasses to help me see better? All of these things would require a varying degree of wisdom because they have a varying degree of consequences. But the thing is, is that I could make all the right choices along the way the wise decisions and, and the appropriate responses as I go throughout my drive, only to realize that early on I had turned south when I should have turned north. And the problem with that would be that I am heading in the wrong direction. My house is not you know southward and it's not going to get me home if I go in that direction. No, my home is north. And I think this is how it is in life. You know, there are a lot of things that we could be wise in. Hobbies, skills, experiences, knowledge, you know, and 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 we would actually need to make wise choices, you know. How do I manage my money? How do I decide if I should start or end this particular dating relationship? How do I discipline my kids? You know, do I pursue further education? All of these things as important and necessary as they are to have wisdom, you know, we could make the good choice in all of those and yet be heading in completely wrong direction in terms of our world view. And this is why the book of Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, because what this allows us to do is to see things from God's perspective, and we cannot do that apart from a relationship with him. If wisdom is about sound judgment and and responding appropriately to reality, then it makes sense that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom because what we are doing is we are having the most appropriate response to the most important reality, God himself. And Proverbs and, you know, Psalms and Job and even and Ecclesiastes and, and all throughout the Bible will hit this time and time again. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. The beginning. And this word, you know, it kind of means something that's not just, okay, we, we start there and we kind of move on. No, it's been recognized that this is supposed to be the first and controlling principle Rather than a stage we enter and leave behind, it's like the foundation, it's the source fearing God. If we want to live wisely, we have to fear God. But you know, okay, well I've got other questions then. You know, what does it mean actually to fear God? What does it mean to fear the Lord? Is the Bible tell me that I need to be afraid of God? And, you know, initially when I think about answering this question, I actually want to slow down for a second, stop and consider, and have us all consider, what are we talking about here? To kind of maybe step outside of the way we've been conditioned in our, in our culture to, to believe that only the comfortable or the convenient things are the things I should, you know, think are right or good or, or, or spend my time thinking about. To remember that we are talking about the God of the universe. See, the word in Hebrew for fear has a semantic range, which could go from respect all the way to utter terror. And when we're talking about something of like fear of God, and God is the subject of that, we're talking about something so big, so grand, and so glorious that this must be more than just mere appreciation or casual respect. There must be something more than that. One scholar puts it this way, He says that fear arises when I encounter God. For in this encounter, I do not meet a distant deity with no influence over my life. To the contrary, I meet the one true power in the universe, the one who controls my destiny, now and forever. See, fearing God, is, 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 it has to be this overwhelming sense of reverence and submission and praise and worship with the deepest level of trust and unrivaled awe. It's this recognition that I'm not God. I don't get to invent my own definitions of right and wrong. No, I am fully dependent on the supreme authority in the universe. And it's why, you know, a place like Ecclesiastes chapter 12 will tell us, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Okay, so it might sound like like a lot is happening here. Uh, is fear of God then, you know, maybe another question we have, is that for today? Like it sounds like this could, could be sort of a dated idea and an old concept from, you know, the first chapters of our Bible, from the Old Testament. And like, well, today it's like, well, I'm all about Jesus. It's, is it something else? Well, be careful with that. Because as, as trendy or as common as it might be to try to pull Jesus out of the Old Testament... The Bible presents to us, from start to finish, in its grand narrative, one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This unified picture of the the Supreme Lord of the universe. And we need to see this because that would tell us that this is not just some old idea. There's not an old God and a new God. No, there is one eternal God. Think Think of what we see of Jesus in the New Testament. Think of some of the scenes that maybe we've read and and forgotten about when we consider, you know, that, that this might not be a relevant thing for right now. Like, for example, in Matthew 17... Jesus uh, takes his, some of his followers up on this mountain and, you know, he's living a life as, as a man on earth, fully God, fully man. And when they get to the top of this mountain, this amazing scene unfolds where Jesus is seen for who he actually is. He is transfigured before them and, he, and his appearance becomes glorious and radiant. And his followers, you know, who are up there with him, they're trying to make sense of all this and try to figure out how to respond. And it says that while they were still speaking, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. That seems to be a normal response. You're coming face to face with God. Check out also Revelation chapter 1. We're told, you know, the writer John, early on, he's in the Spirit. So he's in close fellowship with God. And yet he has this vision of Jesus. In Revelation 1, we see what happens. You know, it's, Jesus shows up in this vision and it's like, wow, you know, he's got eyes like a flame of fire. His voice is like the roar of many waters. And what does John do? Well, we're told, you know, he, he enters this moment and it's like, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though Dead. This is the natural response when you come face to face with the living God, Jesus. There's also this very interesting scene in John chapter 18 that I don't hear, you know, mentioned a lot when we talk about Easter and when we talk about the crucifixion story and the arrest of Jesus. But in John chapter 18, soldiers arrive to arrest Jesus and and send him into the worst moments of his earthly life. Jesus is at his most vulnerable point and what happens is these soldiers come to arrest him and take him into this humiliation and torture and death. But at the start of this scene, John tells us that the soldiers come and Jesus is like, hey, who are you looking for? And they tell him, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus tells them, I am he. And what happens in that moment is that they draw back and fall to the ground. Do you remember this scene? Jesus about to get arrested, a bunch of people, on the ground before him. You know, and and you know, in the context, you know, Jesus is just saying, Yes, that, that is who I am. I am I'm looking, you're looking for the for me. But John also is is smart enough to, to remind us in the language that he is using that when Jesus says, I am, in his gospel, it is connecting to a far more grand, you know, pattern in scripture of the self-existent God revealing himself to humanity with the words, I am. I'm eternal. I'm consistent. I am the God all the way back from Exodus 3 who will reveal himself as I am that I am. And when Jesus says, I am, these soldiers realize they are face-to-face, not just with a man, but they are face-to-face with God himself and they fall down in the dirt. This is what happens when you come face-to-face with God. But you know what I love about Jesus is that that's just not where the stories end. See, in Matthew 17 and in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus does the same thing to those who fall down before him after they see him for who he is. We're told that he reaches out his hand, touches them and says, have no fear. What's happening here? Maybe we're starting to have more questions. Like, okay, well, how how does this all work? Like, we're supposed to fear God and yet Jesus, when he shows himself and and when people are afraid of him, it seems like he's telling them, well, don't be afraid. What's happening? Well, something has happened because of the work of Jesus on our behalf in his mission to rescue a lost creation that allows us to be put in a different position to him. a right relationship with God by faith in who he is and what he has done. His life lived on our behalf. His death died in our place to exchange his righteousness for all of our sin. And we're told, you know, even in in Isaiah, look at the descriptions of Jesus here. It says that the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. See, what happens here is that Jesus, when he comes to live a life you know, that we could not live, a perfect one, he models for us what does it mean to be fully human? And in the process, he shows the fear of the Lord is going to be my delight. So that when you come in and you put your faith in me, you are actually going to be put in a whole new position. You're going to move from death to life, to separated from God, to into right relationship with God. Are you tracking with this? Look at how First John will put it for us. It says that we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected in us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. So how is all of this working together? And I hope you're tracking with this because we're covering a lot of concepts at once, but don't miss this. Like, like, think of how the writer of Hebrews puts it. Therefore, let us be grateful in light of what Jesus has done, in light of what we've received, for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable Worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. How does the concept of fear and love work together? And I think we need to see something here that, you know, even even when we are God's enemies, that's a different position than when we become God's children. We're told in the Bible that the evil spiritual forces, the demons, they believe in this God, they know this God, and what do they do? They shudder at the thought of Him the fact that he is a consuming fire. They're having an appropriate response to that reality. But our response to Jesus puts us in a place where no longer do we shudder before a consuming fire. No, we are cherished by a consuming fire. We're not afraid of our Father because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit he has given us. We're told that we can approach his throne boldly to receive help and grace in our time of need. But although we can be bold, although we have that unique access, be based on our relationship with him that Jesus has given us, although we can be bold, we need to remember we are still approaching a throne. Our Father is also the king. Imagine what would happen if you in your life allowed this reality of fear of God and love from God working together to transform you. Imagine the impact that that would have in our church and through our church in our city. I think we would start to see our vision statement to be a movement of more and growing followers of Jesus come to life in a whole new way because this is how it's always been. Look back at the early church at Acts. In Acts chapter 9, we're told this very important statement that the church all throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria, they had peace and was being built up. And what were they doing? They were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. They got these two concepts, fear of God, but also love from God. Are we going to walk in that? Imagine what would happen if we did. This is the most appropriate response to the most important reality. If we want to be wise, we have got to fear the Lord. Which leads me to a final question. Well, How can I fear God this week? How do I actually do this? In light of all of what we've you know, quickly covered in this overview, I want to offer us one idea with three suggestions. And this idea is simply this. To make Jesus the most important person in every room. Make him the most important person in every room. Treat him as he ought to be treated in every place, in every space, in every conversation, in every circumstance, in every time you're on your phone, scrolling through social media, spending your life on there, wherever you are, make Jesus the most important person in that room. And I think right now, if if you're struggling in your faith, if you've got more doubts and and a sense of, of drifting from your faith in this time, it might be because The only room Jesus was important in prior to the coronavirus was the worship center in our building. And the problem with that is that is only one hour out of the 168 hours in our week. And because of who Jesus is, the most important person in the cosmos, he is the most important person in every single hour and every single room you spend in those hours. When you're on your job site, He's already the most important person while you're trying to carry out you know, your, your responsibilities. He's the most important person at your dinner table when you're arguing with your family. He's the most important person in your living room when you're trying to decide, what am I going to watch on TV? He's the most important person in every place. What would happen in your life, through your life, if you started to treat him that way? And here's three ways I think we can do that. First of which is prayer. Simply pray to God. Look, I always love to encourage people to go to the Psalms if you're, if you're wrestling with how, how do I pray with God? How do I interact with him? What's a relationship with him look like? Go to the Psalms. Jump in even on our summer Bible reading plan uh, through our website. And what you're gonna find is, is you know, that, that opens up a whole new set of possibilities. Maybe one Psalm you really wanna drill into and pray through is Psalm 86, which says things like this, you know, God, you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Maybe the starting point for you is prayer. But maybe as you move, you know, from prayer and and, and keeping prayers as a priority all throughout, maybe one other thing that needs to happen in order for you to make Jesus the most important person in every room is to start to hate what God hates. And I realize that sounds jarring, but, but think about it. The whole predicament, the whole reason we, there is bad news in the Bible, there's, there's a bad side to the gospel story, is for the very fact that humanity is separated from God. We have rebelled against our creator. And as Romans three, and as, and as the Psalms tell us, the reason for this is because there is no fear of God before our eyes. And when we're in this position, it's like sin whispers to our heart. Start to hate what God hates. Are there things in the rooms of your life that you are tolerating or loving that God actually wants to completely get rid of because he hates them? What might that look like? I know it's like, well, uh, how do do I make sense of this? What what would that look like? How does that pertain to wisdom? Well, look, Proverbs will tell us over and over that this is what the fear of the Lord helps us to do. In the power of the Spirit, as we've we've been brought into right relationship with God, he will help us do this very thing, to hate what God hates. Look at Proverbs chapter uh, eight, which says the fear of the Lord is the hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance and the way of evil and perverted speech, I hate. These are just a few examples. You know, these sound like Proverbs chapter 16, which tells us that by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. If you want to walk wisely if you want to experience the transformation and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, if you want to make Jesus the most important person in every room, it's going to involve prayer and it is going to start to involve an attentiveness to what God is pointing out to say, hey, that is something that I hate and it can have no place in your life anymore. Prayer, uprooting things and getting rid of things that are part of the old life. And as we do this, a third thing I would suggest is to remember that the fear of the Lord is something good. Look at how Proverbs, you know, it'll hit this a lot as, as you read through it. Uh, Proverbs 14, the fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. The fear of the Lord leads to life, Proverbs 19, and whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. Proverbs 28, blessed is the one who fears the Lord always. But whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. Make Jesus the most important person in every room. Experience the blessing and the wisdom of that as you, as you take a step towards a more appropriate response to the most important reality in the universe. I, I really hope we get this. I really hope I get this because look, every room I enter is an opportunity to do this. And I don't want to miss opportunities. I've, I've wasted enough of those. And in the words of, you know, in the words of Hamilton, I don't want to waste my shot. Imagine if we, if we grabbed onto this to a greater degree. Imagine if this got more and more into the DNA of your home, of your life, of our church. I pray that it is so because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Father, I pray that we really would grab onto this even as I'm, you know, in this space by myself, in this room Thank you that you are reminding me of the blessing of fearing you and walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. This amazing reality that that I am to fear God because that is the right and appropriate and blessed thing to do. And as I do that, I also understand the amazing love that comes from you. Thank you that you lead us into a life of wisdom. I pray that that would be true for every person who's listening, who's watching That where they are, you would speak to them in a way that makes sense to them. Reminding them that you are the most important person in the place they are right now. And they can take a step towards you because of Jesus. The awesome, great I am.